play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, R&B and soul singer Alan Stone. new song, Brown Eyed Lover, and he'll be singing that song and many others all across the land when his U.S. tour kicks off in Portland, Oregon this October. But before Alan goes on tour, he's getting married to his brown eyed lover. That song is about her, a woman who cooks so well, he wrote a song about one of her dishes, something he doesn't usually do. No, I I don't write about food. I mean, I sing about food when I'm at a restaurant or something, but I sing most of my life. Like, I kind of just sing throughout yeah you know give me that nasty coffee from the (laughs) from the break room from the break room i do that too but i don't have a voice like you tiny creamer tiny creamer tiny creamer (laughs) later in the show alan will reveal the dish his fiance cooked that inspired his song voodoo and we'll dig deep into one of america's most beloved foods a dish that presents like a snack but eats like a meal a dish that will inspire a modest amount of punning on today's episode. I really held back. Please believe me. And if punning is nacho cup of tea, we're sorry, because we're talking about nachos. We'll learn the history of nachos from Derek Sotak of nachonomics.com. And I chat with Gina Hamidi, the woman behind the weird and wonderful cookbook, Buenos Nachos. See, she even punned the title of the cookbook. It's not just me. In Buenos Nachos, chefs and celebrities contribute nacho average nacho recipes. That's two. Recipes like lobster nachos with buttermilk queso and machos made with matzah instead of chips. But first, my conversation with Alan Stone. So when Alan was on the road touring with his organ player, Greg Ehrlich, he ate unusually well. Ehrlich assembled an elaborate portable kitchen that traveled along with the band in a big gear case. Super cool. Um, He kind of came up with the concept because, as one might understand, living on a studio apartment with four wheels, traveling consistently, you don't eat well. There's a lot of situations where you have to eat on the go, you have to eat quick. um, And the greatest thing known to man is sharing a meal, breaking bread together. Uh, So... He concocted this idea where we would take a road case. Uh, KitchenAid sponsored him. Oh, really? Is that where he got all the gear? Yeah, they gave him a full outfit, convection oven, like blender, everything. I saw there was a sous vide in there, too. Yeah, he had a sous vide in there. Like we would sous vide in bathtubs. (laughs) In hotel rooms? In hotel rooms, yeah. You know, we'd do these tours where he would string like an extension cord into the bus via the stage so that we could have chocolate chip cookies when we got off the stage. Wow. You know, his grandma's recipe. And then he would do like his take on, what's that restaurant? The really famous restaurant in town with the sandwiches, the, the pork. Cube. Subway. 
<laughs> Paseo. Jimmy John's. Yeah. Have you heard of it? <laughs> the Pizza Pipeline. <laughs> Pizza Hut. Do they have Subway. sandwiches? The Pizzone. Pizzone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just like my grandpa Tony used to make back in Sicily. Oh, God, Tony. I loved him. He was a little grabby. Oh, yeah. But. Very grabby. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so anyway. he would make his take on the Paseo sandwich many times. Which, for uh, those who don't know, is a Cuban-style sandwich place here in Seattle that is delicious. Delicious. Very long lines. Very long lines. Um, but worth the wait. And uh, he would do Thanksgiving. We had many Thanksgivings together in random Hotel Sixes parking lots. I like how you upgraded it from Motel 6 to Hotel 6. Yeah. The video that I saw, were you guys in the parking lot of a Motel 6? Yes, for sure. With sous vide steak and mashed potatoes with this like fancy sauce on it. It was like a blueberry reduction sauce or some sort of incredible concoction that he had managed to get from the leftover rider fruit. <laughs> oh, nice. He was foraging. He was foraging for yeah. sure, like not leaving the green room to do so. But... Yeah, green room foraging. What kind of voodoo do you do? What kind of voodoo do you do, do, do? What sort of witchcraft have I walked into? Darling, what kind of voodoo do you do? Like I mentioned earlier, Alan wrote the song Voodoo about a dish his fiance cooked. But you'll notice that he refers to her as his wife. We are technically fianced, okay. but uh, I don't like that name. Okay, too French? I don't know. I just uh, I just like wife. I like the name wife. I like really enjoy that name. This is my wife. Mm-hmm. Super awesome. Very endearing. Speaking of your wife, I was yeah. told that your song Voodoo is about a dish that she makes. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Totally. I'd love to. So we, my wife is an incredible cook. She comes from a lineage of incredible cooks. Her mother is amazing. Taz came to the table with these arancini balls, essentially. Rice balls with goat cheese and some spices in it. I'd never mm. had anything like that before in my life. So she brings them to the table. They, you know, they got this beautiful Asian slaw on top of them and this spicy mayo. And she brings them to me and my producer at the time. We're, this is living out in a cabin near Spokane. And she's, I might try these, might have some, these are arancini balls. These are like veggie, nice balls. And I took a bite and I'd, I'd never had an arancini ball or anything this great. I literally, I took a bite, I looked up at her and I'm like, what kind of voodoo do you do? <laughs> and me and my producer just right away looked at each other and started, what kind of voodoo do you do? And it just wrote itself pretty much at the table right there. Really? The yeah. melody and everything? Everything. It's super catchy. It was cool. Yeah. And then the third verse was. <laughs> Everyone's favorite verse. Yeah. Right, yeah. That's really cool. So um, has food and cooking inspired any of your other music or lyrics? Um, No. <laughs> that's it no I, yeah. I don't write about food I mean I sing about food when I'm at a restaurant or something but I sing most of my life like I kind of just sing throughout yeah you know give me that nasty coffee from the <laughs> from the break room from the break room I do How that too but I don't have a voice call- like you yeah. 
tiny creamer, tiny creamer, tiny creamer. <laughs> yeah, I told my boyfriend the other day, you didn't know when this started that you were going to have to be with someone who sang all of her thoughts. It just happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Alan Stone grew up in a small town in eastern Washington. Narnia. Narnia. Yeah, no, Narnia, uh, Washington. <laughs> yes. Uh, Chawila. Chawila. And you grew up in the church, and that's where you learned to love singing. Is that right? Yeah, totally. Alan's dad was the minister of his church, where he started singing as a toddler. I, I can't remember a time when we didn't sing. It was just constantly happening. Obviously, when parents work in the church, you're just always there. Just grew up in my dad's church. And then as a family, we would sing songs too. So you would learn, you know, we, we would go on missions trips and we would learn like songs in the native language of where we went. Oh, wow. And then we would come back and sing those songs for different congregations that we would go and visit and tell about all the good work we'd been doing in uh, you know, Mexico or Ukraine. We went to Ukraine a lot. And then my pops uh, was a guitar player and he taught me a few chords, G, C, D, and... I realized that that was a wonderful way to get attention. And because of my extreme narcissism, I was like, wait a second, everybody pays attention to me and stops talking if I pick up this little weird device and sing and pitch. And uh, soon thereafter, started writing my own songs for, you know, the local like schoolgirls that I wanted to <laughs> hang out with and <laughs> sing them. I like pick, we would do like speakerphone thing. I would call them and then they would be oh, like, oh, yeah. Girl. Girl, you know I'm saying. Want to sit next to you in math so bad, but yeah. then Tara won't move. She's the one that's in between us in the seat. Yeah. I hate Tara. Oh, she was. Couldn't she have just moved? My wife's name's Tara. So it's- <gasps> really? That is so weird. I didn't know Super that out random. of every name I could have picked. That's so strange. But it's, pronounced, it's pronounced Tara. Okay. So that's okay. Phew. And I uh, call her Taz. Totally but, random. That is that really weird. That would be the weird. one name that you would pick. Coming up after the break, Alan Stone's last meal. And I chat with the founder of the website, nachonomics.com, about the history of nachos. Which, by the way, it's a big anniversary for nachos this year. It is? Really? You forgot another anniversary? Oh, no! Typical guy. <laughs> Am I right, ladies? We'll be right back. But Aaron's in the doghouse. <laughs> if you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. So let's get to the crux of the matter here. Okay. What would your last meal be? Um, that's a very interesting question. I'm lying to you in part. One, okay. my last meal I'm going to say is nachos, but it wouldn't be. Oh. I want 
to have a conversation about nachos because I think it's going to be way more interesting than my last meal. My last meal would probably be like, you know, a prime rib or like a filet mignon okay. or something. Yeah. But nachos, I have so much, such a history in my family with nachos and I don't know anything about it. So I was like, I want to learn yeah. about nachos. Let's, let's talk about nachos. So my last meal would be nachos. But it's nacho last meal. But it's nachos really. either. It's nacho last meal. <laughs> I know. I was like, ooh, this is going to be full of annoying puns. I'm so excited for this episode. The same annoying pun over and over right. again. Uh, so what do you love about nachos besides the fact that they're kind of the best and everybody loves them? They, they're a universal food that I think everybody loves. And they can be done so well. And they can be done so wrong. Yes. Nachos I've had probably in every corner of the world it's kind of like my go-to like if i'm if i'm on cheat day <laughs> i get a plate of nachos man i'll destroy those nachos <laughs> okay i have so many questions but yeah. let's start with what are the perfect nachos and then what is a way to totally screw them up oh god okay so the best nachos it starts with the chip the chip needs to have a consistency and a strength to it that by the end of the nacho you've still got a durable tortilla chip. Yes. The worst thing that can ever happen in a plate of nachos is seven bites into the nacho, the chips are like linen cloths and they're flipping everywhere and the refried beans have just molested the tortilla chip to a point where it's like, it's not a chip anymore. It's like a leather saddle. It's given up. It's given up. Yes. It's let itself go. Cheese distribution. You need to, melt in layers yes beans and guac and sour cream and lettuce and all these don't put those on until the end you got to season the carne asada or the carnitas whatever it is you're gonna put on there the chicken maybe you got to cook that off before you throw it on the on the tortilla chip and um that's as far as i've gotten with the science of that's good though nachos uh how do you feel about nacho cheese well you can go about in a lot of ways right you can do the best way, which is make queso. Okay. I, mean, I don't know exactly how they prepare it, but it's like a combination of half and half, like heavy cream, white cheese, like there's some cool spices in there. You can do it that way, which is always great. I really hate the nacho cheese like, that you would get at a baseball game with those round chips. Like yeah, that yeah. is so gross to me. I don't yeah. like it. It makes me feel like a snob, but just like the kind that pumps out of the machine. Oh. No, thanks. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. Although when I was a kid, that was my favorite thing, like going to the local football game, you know, like a high school would play right across the street from my childhood home. And that was my thing. I was like, oh, I just, mom, I need two bucks and I'm going to get a Mountain Dew and I'm going to get just round tortilla chips with like runny, saucy cheese. It was the best thing. Okay. So, um, queso. Okay, so so, uh, you said you're interested in knowing the history. I'm excited to dig into it and learn the history too. But I want to know if you could just make up quickly what you think the history of the nachos could be. Where do you think they came from? Man, I don't know. This is just a literally throw the ball in the dark guess. My guess is they originated somewhere near Texas or San Diego, a Mexican restaurant. And I think that they probably were just like, well, we we got all these leftover tortilla chips we should just make a thing maybe we pile them up and melt the cheese and throw some meats on that's sort of my guess Mm -hmm. but i don't know i hope there's a longer tradition of nachos i hope so too i'm excited to dig into it 
This year marks the 75th anniversary of the invention of nachos, which is a damn good excuse to grate some cheese, make some guacamole, and eat more sour cream than the Surgeon General recommends. And Alan's shot in the dark guess about where nachos came from is actually very close to the real story. Please welcome nacho historian, not his actual title, Derek Sotak to the show. Derek is a nacho fanatic and the founder of the website nachonomics.com. And so now does everybody give you nacho gifts and it's the one thing that you're defined by and you can't escape them? I mean, that's pretty much it exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So for Christmas, I got three nacho books that I already had. So I appreciate the thought, but you don't need to. You can can branch out a little bit. I'm more than just nachos. Sorry, Derek. Today, or at least for the next 10 minutes or so, you are not more than just nachos. You are only nachos and you will be our nacho Sherpa educating us on the history of one of America's most beloved and least polarizing foods. Uh, They were invented back in 1943, so here we are 75 years later. And who brought the world nachos? Uh, Ignacio Anaya was the credited creator of nachos, and we get the name nachos from the shortened version of Ignacio. Uh, Basically, he was either the maitre d' or the cook or just all-around handyman type of guy at a uh, the Victory Club restaurant in Pedros Negros, Mexico. And as the legend goes, a group of army wives came over from um, an Air Force base right over the corner in uh, Eagles Pass, Texas. And they showed up right as the restaurant was closing. And Ignacio, being the ever-humble host, was like, all right, you guys hold on a sec. I'll see what I can do. So he went in the back room of the kitchen and was like, all right, what do I got here? I got some uh, I got some tortillas, I got some cheese, I got some jalapenos. And he shredded up the cheese, threw on the tortillas, threw that on the salamander, which, uh, named after the mythological beast, melts the cheese, and then cut up the jalapeno, put it on top, and boom, Nachos Especiales was born. And that ultimately got shortened to Nachos Specials, and then finally, as we know today, just plain nachos. So how did that one plate of nachos that was served randomly one late night by somebody who may not have even been a cook at the restaurant uh, turn into a national phenomenon? In 1949, we have the first mentioned version of it in the Taste of Texas cookbook, which is edited by Jean Trahey. Um, In 1954, we have a first mention of the original recipe in a cookbook out of uh, St. Anne's Church, which is in Texas. And then in 40 or 59, rather, we have Carmen Rocha, who's kind of of the three major people who brought nachos in the world. She's the second one. And she was an Austin native who moved out to L.A., started working at the El Cholo Mexican restaurant out there and brought nachos with her and kind of expanded on that point. So at this point, we got nachos in Texas, a little bit of Mexico and L.A. But nachos really exploded in 1978 because of a historical call at a Monday night football game. But in uh, 1978, it was a Monday night football game between the Baltimore Colts and the Dallas Cowboys. And it was a blowout of the Cowboys 38, the Colts 0. And Howard Cosell was, you know, narrating the thing from the stadium and trying to make it exciting of this giant blowout. And they gave him a, a plate of nachos brought up to him in the booth. And he was like, oh, uh, I like these. How do you say these? Are these nachos? Are these nachos? And then after that, I just started using nachos as like an adjective. Like, oh, hey, check out that nacho run and whatever. Because, you know, he was a very uh, purple prose type of character was Howard Cosell. And it just caught on across everyone who heard about this thing and needed to know what it was. And thusly, it kind of spread across America at that point. As you might imagine, Derek eats nachos wherever he goes. Although he has slowed down his consumption due to the metabolism woes that come with getting a little bit older. 
So what are Derek's favorite nachos in the country? So the best nachos I've ever had were at Tio's Mexican Cafe in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And they have Mount Nachismo, which is the largest commercially available order of nachos you can buy. They're five pounds, 50 bucks. If you can eat it all in 45 minutes or less, you get your picture on the wall. It's free and you get a shirt to go along with it. And uh, Adam Richmond from Man Vs. Food ate it once. And that's how I kind of, oh, heard about this thing. So I got to go check that out. I was not able to eat it, but just I think because it's so large, the ratios of toppings to chips to everything else, just perfect on it. But also out in your neck of woods, the strangely enough, the Bigfoot food and spirits in the SeaTac airport makes a really good pulled pork nacho. Almost missed the plane to get it, but pretty tasty if you've got a couple hours to kill there. All right. So far, we have only talked about classic nachos. Tortilla chips topped with melty cheese, sour cream, guac, jalapenos, maybe some beans and meat. But in Gina Hamity's book, Buenos Nachos, it's nachos gone wild. (laughs) Well, I'm thinking of like the little chips without their tops on, (laughs) which are the worst parts of nachos because you want decent coverage. Aaron's nodding. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. Is this an audio program? (laughs) This is. (laughs) I'm really thinking about nachos hard right now. Well, these are nacho average nachos. I, I don't think I've done that many puns so far. I think I'm doing fine. Gina gathered nacho recipes from some of the country's top chefs and celebrities, and many of them pushed the boundaries of what we've defined as a traditional nacho. Is it still nachos if you use matza instead of tortilla chips? Should nachos be topped with caviar? We will dig in and answer these questions after the break. listening to your last meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. If you love nachos, and I'm guessing you love nachos, really, who doesn't love nachos? You will need to pick up a copy of Gina Hamity's book, Buenos Nachos. Gina used to be the travel editor at Food & Wine magazine, and she curated a beautiful, colorful collection of nacho recipes from chefs and celebrities. People like Naomi Pomeroy, Bill Hader, and Dominique Ansel. If you remember, he's the guy that invented the cronut. What constitutes a nacho? How do you determine that something is a nacho? That is something that changed as I wrote this book. Most people think corn chip, cheese, heat that up and that's a nacho. Very quickly, I realized you don't need the cheese um, because a lot of these recipes don't have cheese. And a lot of the recipes don't use corn chips. A lot of them use other kinds of chips, but definitely something crunchy for sure. A crunchy chip or chip substitute and topped with either a cheese or a substitute, something that is creamy or cheese-like, I guess. Yeah. Can you give an example? Because I'm kind of, I'm schwitzing over here about no cheese. I know. No. And I would have in the beginning. And now I'm like, now it seems crazy to me that I ever thought a nacho had to have cheese. Oh, I just found one that doesn't have cheese. Tiffany Thiessen's breakfast nachos don't have cheese. 
So Tiffany Thiessen, she doesn't go by Tiffany Amber Thiessen anymore, makes breakfast nachos with potato chips. It's a mess of delicious, different textures and flavors on top of crunchy chips. And that is a nacho, right? She basically does a nice little fry up with sausages, onions, peppers, some kale, and she puts all that over potato chips and then she drizzles on some hot mayo sriracha and then she puts some eggs on top. Oh, fried eggs on top. Yeah, definitely a nacho. Well, let's talk about a couple of nachos uh, that I've picked out because uh, you have a couple people in your book who I've had as guests on my podcast. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to pick them out. Uh, so first of all, Crazy Legs Conti, he is a professional eater. He was on our pizza episode talking about uh, his professional pizza eating that he has done in his career. Uh, and his nachos are called Fever Dream Nachos. Can you describe them? Yeah. I was so excited when this recipe came in because he is a madman. This definitely gets the award for most creative. It is like a mound of nachos. And in the center, what draws your eye is a national bohemian beer. And resting on top of that beer can is a little cocktail cup filled with chinar. You look at the picture and you see what looks like beans and you think, oh, like Mexican Pinto beans, that's normal. No, it's not pinto beans. It's it's natto, which is Japanese fermented soybeans, which is, you know, famously slimy and really to the Western palate, pretty, it's pretty much a turnoff for most people. I am not a picky person. And I lived in Japan for a year and natto is one of the few foods in the whole world that I cannot eat. It might be the only food that I would say that I really dislike. I'm the same. And you know what? I actually love the slime from okra. Like I get it. Yeah, and me I love too. it. I don't, I don't mind slime in, in, in its place, but yeah, natto, I cannot do. But if your point is to get as many textures into one place as possible, I mean, he, he did it with natto. So what I love is I'm just going to quote right from him because I'm not going to say it as beautifully as he did. A can of national bohemian beer covered in old Bay seasoning stands in the middle of the pyramid And he says, opening the beer will send the seasoning both into the can, which tastes great, and over the chips. And on top of the can is a rocks glass filled with the Italian artichoke-based Amaro Chinar, from which Conti suggests everyone sip as they eat. Okay, so now you scatter half your chips on a rimmed baking sheet, and then you start layering the ingredients. So he does provolone, which is an interesting choice. Like that adds a little funk, right? He throws that in a hot oven until it's melted about eight minutes. Okay. He goes right into the spoonfuls of natto. Good luck finding natto in the heartland of America. Um, Mm. Then sprinkle the tomato, avocados, artichoke hearts, cotija, which is a Mexican kind of crumbly, yummy cheese. Um, He does spinach, tarragon, and Aleppo pepper. Tarragon is also like a very interesting choice So odd. I would never put that together with these other ingredients. And artichoke hearts is also quite unique. So I want to talk about Gail Simmons' Heebster Nachos because she was another guest that I had on the podcast. Uh, And I love this because as a Jew, I just love anything Jewy. And you in the book have arranged her nachos in the shape of a Star of David. It's almost like a bagel with cream cheese version of nachos. So I'm going to go ahead and like name drop and brag here and say that Gail Simmons is a dear friend of mine and a neighbor. And we both worked at Food and Wine. There is something genius about turning a bagel sampler platter into a nacho. And it really works. By the way, this is an example of there's no cheese in this recipe. Oh, you're right. There's not. I thought there was cream cheese. Okay. So it looks like what she did is she takes pita chips and then Mm -hmm. she makes her own kind of everything bagel 
seasoning and bakes that on to make them into pita chips. That's right. And she makes the pita chips herself, right? So she like she cuts up the pitas and she spices them and crisps them up. And then she just adds all this stuff that has so much flavor and is so delicious. And when you get it all in one bite, it's um, that's a little bit of magic. And you think that I would never think that that's a nacho, but it absolutely is a nacho. Can you talk about the ingredients that go on it? She adds capers. That's a little pickle. That's a really tangy flavor. Sour cream for the creaminess. White fish can never go wrong. Red onion for that spice and tang. And you got cucumber, tomato, and dill all on those homemade pita chips. So good. I want to make that one. That looks so delicious. Wouldn't that be amazing for a brunch? Yes, it totally, it would be good after a bris. People would be like so delighted. Is there anything that you think does not belong on nachos? Like personally for me, I don't want the shredded lettuce. I don't want that in my burrito. I don't want it in my taco. Like it doesn't have any flavor and it's wet. What about for you? Is there a no nacho ingredient? Yeah, I'm, that's exactly what Yorma Tacconi, we, we did a nacho recipe with him and his wife, Marielle Heller, and they come from the East Bay. And so they did East Bay burrito nachos. And this was Yorma's quote, no lettuce. And that's the, that's the rule in the East Bay for burritos. And I think that's an absolutely fair rule. I am from the East Bay. So perhaps this is why I have this opinion. <laughs> yeah, like That's just baked in for you guys. Alan Stone agrees. Lettuce, like grated lettuce on nachos, always perplexes. Or any like wet vegetable, you <laughs> yeah. know, like chopped tomatoes. You know, like I understand like chop a little pico de gallo, put a little dollop on the top for pizzazz. Decorate. Decorate. Mm-hmm. But like, Listen, you're eating nachos, not because you care about your body. Don't fake that you care about your arteries by throwing on shredded lettuce. Yeah, it's not a time for non-fat sour cream. No. Go for it. Daisy dollop. I love the daisy dollop. That's my favorite, too. Pretty much anything goes in Buenos nachos. There are smoked meat poutine nachos, Creole crawfish nachos, Mexican street corn nachos. I really want to make those. But Gina does have a line she'd prefer you not cross. I was interested in the beginning of your book because there were some rules, some things that you kind of put your foot down and you said, you know, never make nachos in the microwave and try not to use bag cheese. Just grate your own. Uh, and I was interested in, in why these were absolute no's because the book otherwise has no limitations, as we've been talking about, you know, nachos every which way. I am thrilled to talk about that. Okay, so growing up, that was nachos to me, was shake a bag of tortilla chips onto a plate, add grated cheese from the store, throw into the microwave. And like, I mean, it's fine. It's not, you're not going to be like upset about it. Uh, If you just took the time to throw it into a hot oven for eight minutes, it is such a big difference. So, okay, so there's two things going on here, right? Let's start with the cheese. Cheese that is pre-grated in order for it to remain stable, you know, it has little stabilizers in it. So it's just a weird, like, it's never going to be as delicious. It just doesn't, it's just not the same. And then when you crisp up nachos in the oven, the chips themselves kind of turn like toasty and delicious, which is wonderful. And in the microwave, there's a little bit of a soggy rubberiness with the chips. And it's really, it's like you go home, you're drunk, you want nachos. The 12 minutes it would take to preheat your oven, it's worth it. If you're going to do the nachos, like take those 12 minutes to give yourself a real nacho experience. And that was Alan Stone's last meal. Alan Stone, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. 
It's not your problem. It's not your turn to talk. Let me say something. Whoa, dude. Okay, it's so I guess I should leave. Cheese buns, cheese buns, cheese buns, cheese buns. <laughs> Is that it? That's it. Oh, cool. Yeah. Alan Stone has two singles out now, Brown Eyed Lover and Warriors. You can buy both of them at alanstone.com or wherever you buy music. Keywords, buy his music. And check out his upcoming tour schedule at alanstone.com. What's the best way for people to buy your music that would give you the most money? Come to a show. Okay. That's the best way these days? Yeah. Like physically show up at the show. That's the best way to put nachos in my belly. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to Derek Sotak of Nachonomics.com. He has put together a couple of nacho chat books. They're for sale on his website now. They're called The Field Guide to Nachos, Nachos and You, and Recipes from the Nachonomicon. <laughs> Thanks to Gina Hamity, author of Buenos Nachos. Pick up her book at your favorite local bookseller. This is a book that I plan to give to a lot of people over many holiday seasons over the course of the rest of my life. This show was produced by Aaron Mason and me, the music by Prom Queen. And make sure you follow along. We're on Instagram now. Welcome to the future. Follow us at Your Last Meal Podcast. And if you haven't subscribed yet, just hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get new episodes as soon as they come out. And we'd be so grateful if you left us a review on iTunes. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. Ha, ha, ha.